1: Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host Nick Bellato. Today we got some Giants football to talk about. The mandatory minicamp is in session. And there's actually some media updates. We had interviews with Jason Garrett, offensive coordinator, Thomas McGahey, special teams coordinator. Patrick Graham defensive coordinator several players spoke and we had updates from the field so there's a lot to talk about tonight before we dive into any of that Nick how are you doing on this lovely 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 Wednesday evening in northern New Jersey it was a hot one today was a hot one today
2: man I'm doing really well it's exciting to have some Giants content being pushed out there but you know it's it's still mini camp mandatory mini camp but mini camp so just gearing up for the season man and I'm I'm excited for 2021
1: Me too, man. Me too. This team has given us a lot to be excited about. Obviously, there's the overarching and overhanging concerns that we're going to have until we see it on the field regarding Jason Garrett, regarding the offensive line, regarding Daniel Jones. And those obviously mean a lot, but everything else seems to be in place. And there's a lot of excitement to build on certain things. Like the defense can certainly get better this year. We'll talk about a lot of that with what Patrick Graham said and what some of the players have looked like out there. Specifically, Aziz Ojolari, I think, is going to acclimate himself Really quickly. But before we do any of that, let's dive into some news and notes first. The preseason schedule for the Giants has been finalized. They'll open on August 14th with the Jets. They're going to play the Browns at 1 p.m., which is an odd time to play a preseason game on August 22nd. I believe that's a Sunday. Then they're going to play the Patriots to wrap it up on August 29th. Remember, only three preseason games this year because 17 regular season games. But more interesting than that, they're going to finally bring back the joint practices. That's something that's very Belichickian. Patriots have been doing that for a while. Giants did it at one point when they did joint practices with the Lions a few years back. But they haven't done it recently. And this year, obviously last year they couldn't do it with COVID. Though I think that's something that Joe Judge wants to do. And this year he'll do it again with joint practices with the Browns. Two joint practices with Odell Beckham Jr.'s Browns and then potentially joint practices of the Patriots, those have been rumored, that's not confirmed. But the Browns' joint practices have been confirmed. So what do you make of that, Nick?
2: I love it. I really do love it, to be honest, because that means Andrew Thomas and Matt Parrick to face Jadamian Clowney and Miles Garrett, and that just talented defense and that talented defensive line. And really, if we're going to be honest, the Browns have, what, would... would arguably a top five roster in the NFL. So I would love for the Giants to be able to practice with them. I don't know the extent of the practice. There's going to be, you know, limited hitting, if it's just going to be tap drills or whatever. But I am uh, I'm glad they get to uh, be, just get to see another team practice, kind of feed off them, and then get to compete against them as well.
1: It'll be an excellent test for the Giants' offensive line and the Giants' defensive line in those joint practices against the Browns. As we'll touch on a little bit later, it's not it's not that we don't want to take anything away from what we see from the offensive line and the defensive line specifically the edge group during this mini camp but as Patrick Graham said I'm not going to put too much weight almost any weight in the defensive line stuff until training camp he says almost nothing matters until then but during these joint practices there will be hitting there will be pads and the Giants will have an opportunity to go against arguably a top five maybe a top three offensive line in the NFL that the Browns have maybe top two. Honestly, that might be the best offensive line in the NFL, front to back and just from a depth standpoint, and given that, you know, they are so well acclimated to that zone-blocking system and what they do. And on the other side of the ball, the defensive line, it's one of the best defensive lines now, too, with all the talent they've added there, and obviously having the alpha dog there and Miles Garrett, so that'll be another really good test for this young, developing Giants offensive line, so I can't think of a better team to have joint practices against.
2: And you get these wide receivers that are going to be able to go against Denzel Ward and then Greg Newsome, and you also got a Greedy Williams as well there as their third guy who's been injured a lot, the brother or the younger brother over Darius Williams, even though he was drafted two years prior to Rodarius. So I, I just think overall it's going to challenge a lot of our key position groups, and I hope that we can get some video from those practices somehow.
1: Yeah, me too, and I think there will be a lot of video that comes from those practices, actually, both from the Giants and Browns Twitter accounts. Let's get to some updates from the mini camp on Wednesday, and then some maybe from Tuesday as well. A little wrap up there as well kadarius tony giants first round rookie had a really good day at practice today as far as what minicamp goes um he's been doing a lot of punt return drills which i think is interesting but a little cold water on that thomas McGee says although tony is electric and can do some things they're not used to he still has to get acclimated he says he has to gain the trust of the teammates and being a punt return in the nfl is a really big responsibility so he's like you saw his college tape you know the ability but again Being a punt returner, he said it twice. That's a huge job and a huge responsibility. So I do like to see him returning those punts. For me, the ultimate optimal goal for this Giants roster this year is to have Tony as the punt returner. I think they'll... Be able to squeeze out an extra five to ten yards on average per game, maybe more just from having him there. When he has the ball in his hands through sheer will and contact balance, he just generates a lot of yards. He doesn't go down on first contact. It's why I comped him to Alvin Kamara way back when I did his draft profile for CBS, all the way back in March or whenever that was. That's the main reason. It's that ability after the catch or with the ball in his hands to kind of squirt forward and just find a way to stay upright and keep fighting. Now, I think that could lead to injuries at the NFL level. I'm going to be monitoring that throughout his career. And obviously, you think of it like, oh, do you want him returning punts if he's better chance of getting injured? But they have so much talent and depth at receiver. And you know Jason Garrett's the coordinator who's going to use a lot of 12 personnel still. He's going to use a lot of 13 personnel, and that means two tight ends or three tight ends. So he may still be, at least in his rookie year, a 40, 50% snap player on offense. So in that scenario, I think the best case to get him on the field is given him more chances to get the ball in his hands and see what he can do after the catch or in this return in this instance after the punt return and i'm really hopeful that he will seize that job
2: especially just with the fact that he is so good with the football in space he's so good at just forcing disadvantageous angles for defenders because he's so quick with his change of direction and his ability to use his just quickness to make people miss contact bounce all the things you pointed out but one thing he he is really good at extending plays after he is hit but we've saw it a little bit in college that sometimes it could be susceptible to fumbles and you know 30 year old nfl players are going to be going for that football so ball security is going to have to be big for Kadarius tony <laughs> i like how uh thomas mcgahee threw a little bit of uh he he just flexed a little bit when he's like, Okay, Dante Hall's Dante Hall, he's the human joystick. And then he also added in the little I was actually with Dante Hall this last weekend or he said something along those lines. I'm like, That's a nice little flex right there.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And like we noticed last year, and like we said I should say sorry, last year, when Dion Lewis had that fumble on the kick return. Ugh. That is the type of play where you're like, I don't give a crap what you did in the return game. If you fumble, it really ruins everything. I would rather you just kneel that ball in the end zone and take it out at 25. It's a little different on punt returns. Kick returns these days have been kind of ruled out in my mind by the way the NFL has set up the rules for the kick returns. I'm a big believer now in just take the knee, take the 25-yard line. Don't risk taking it out and fumbling the football. It's not worth it, but agreed. If he's going to if you know if fumbles come into play that will quickly take him off the field but they have a lot of options there with Peppers with Shepard with Tony now in the mix potentially other players Dory who can Jackson. work their way exactly Dory Jackson though I don't think they're going to want to put a 100% snap defender on the field but they did show that they weren't afraid to do it a little bit with Preppers, who was close to a 100% snap defender so we'll see what happens there but it's a good you know it's a good problem to have the Giants have a lot of options in the return game
2: there was uh Since we're already on with Thomas McGahey, I thought there was a lot of good takeaways from what he had to say. And my uh, superior at Giants Country, Pat Train, asked a pretty good question about the Gunners and the continuity and maybe how that has affected Riley Dixon and how Riley Dixon has just kind of not lived up to the expectations. And McGehee kind of went on a little bit about how continuity is a big deal. But overall, I'm not 100% sure if that's why Riley Because some of those punts, man, they just sell that up. It wasn't had. Nothing to do with the gunners. As much as I would like for that to be the issue, some of them were just ill placed. Some of them just went out of bounds, and he really needs to fix himself, or he's not going to find himself on the roster probably too much longer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was coach speak. I, I put it in my notes, and I think you have the same idea, had the ba- exact same de- idea as me. My issues with Dixon were not gunner based. They were he couldn't pin the ball inside the red zone. He did a terif- a horrific job of placement it's on his punts. Thing, yeah. And he had tons of opportunities because, guess what? (laughs) Joe Judge punted a lot on those fourth and short situations in the other team's uh, territory. And yet, Dixon did a bad job with that. So, you know, he can, Coach, speak that up. The fact of the matter is, Dixon's one of, I believe, a top six paid punter. And by the metrics, he was an average punter. I think he was a bit worse than the metrics say. I think they say he was just about league average. I would say he's a little bit below. Then again, I don't know all 32 punters. But even so, if you're league average and you're making that kind of money against the cap... No point. Get rid of him in my mind. Move on to another punter. I didn't think he should be back for this year. I'm okay giving him another shot. We'll see what happens. Obviously, maybe this is correct with what McGee said. I mean, basically, he also said it wasn't all roses from what McGee said about Dixney. I mean, because you think about how he talked about just about every other special teams player, and it was very high regard for them all, specifically Graham Gano And even and Nate he, Ebner, too. And even Nate Ebner is not even on the roster right now, or whatever he's doing. And then when it came to Dixney, he says, like anything else we do around here when there are issues— key quote, when there are issues. So clearly he believes there were issues there. He says it's going back to the fundamentals. That's what Riley has to get back to. We are getting back to working on those fundamentals. When we get the pace right, everything else will take care of itself. He's been working hard and he's really had a good offseason. We'll continue to process and just try to get better. So this is it, I think, for Dixon. He has It's now or never for him. And ultimately when you're paying a punter that much money against your cap in my mind he has to be top five top 10 consistently
2: and it has to be consistent too because if week one comes around and he has a bad punt and it just sways the field position and the broncos and drew lock or teddy bridgewater or whatever quarterback they decide to put out there ends up getting a short field and scoring at a pivotal situation and that leash is going to be short for that punter man i'm telling you
1: there's no doubt about it one more thing i thought was interesting with mcgahee they asked him specifically now that are you know now that jubile peppers has kind of solidified his role on defense are you backing off having him as a punt returner and he said point blank no he will not be
2: which i love to hear too it should be the best punt re- punt returner you put him out there i want to say he averaged like around like 12 uh 12 yards per return or something along those lines i don't i don't want to necessarily be quoted on it but he did a solid job he flashed but honestly and i kind of wanted to get your opinion on this in terms of the punt returner like It makes sense to have Kadarius Tony do it if ball security isn't an issue for him because I don't expect him to be rolled out there on first down consistently, especially in Jason Garrett's offense. Now that could change. But from what we saw last year, Jason Garrett came out a lot in 12, 13 personnel. And that doesn't mean that they were always lined up, you know, on the line of scrimmage. He did, you know, he would line them up on the line of scrimmage and then he would spread them out to five wide sometimes, depending on the situation, depending on the defense. Jason Garrett really tried to use that heavy personnel and then the defense would come out in base and then he would try to spread them out but when you have Levine Toilolo running routes I mean that's not somebody who's going to be able to use all that space because the athletic ability isn't necessarily there now if you could do it with Caden Smith Evan Ingram and Kyle Rudolph maybe you're going to have a slight advantage against certain linebackers but in today's NFL man those second level defenders are so quick I'm not even 100% sure I don't think that should just be the overall philosophy of the offense I seem like it was a wrinkle that Jason Garrett loved to employ all throughout the season
1: yeah it's interesting because in my ideal world, if I was coordinator of the Giants, Tony would immediately, at least once he has the mental side of this down, and that is hard to figure out when that will be. That could be week two. That could be week one. For Odo Beckham, it was basically immediately. like He missed all of training camp with that hammy. Came back in week four or five, I believe, against the Falcons in his rookie season. And he was ready to go right away from a mental standpoint. That may be the case for Tony. It may not. But ideally, my offense would be limited from a 12 and 13 personnel standpoint. I would not run it a lot. They don't have the personnel to run it in my mind. I don't think Rudolph is that great of a player. I don't think Ingram is that great of a player. I do think Tony can be a great player. And I do think if you're constantly using him on the field from the slot in pre-snap motion you bring him into the backfield you bring him on jet sweep you bring him on fake jet sweep you send him on verts off of that you find different ways to make the defense have to account for him in addition to Barkley and Galladay those are your three in my mind the perfect world is there's three guys the defense has to account for on every single snap and then when you go to zone read you now have three guys that aren't even related to the passing game because Jones can run too then you got Jones Barkley and Tony could all have the ball in their hands and you don't like that you take it you keep it as the quarterback You throw it out on the quick hitter, the slant to Galladay. There's a lot of options based off of that. But ultimately, if he is kind of worked his way in slowly like this, and he is used as a punt returner, that's fine too, but... I just don't see the ceiling with this Giants offense being a heavy early down 12 and 13 personnel. I understand the idea that Garrett has. It should give you a theoretical advantage to come out and heavy and force the defense to play heavy. But NFL defense's days aren't responding as much to the personnel they're seeing, especially when one of those 12 personnel, one of those two tight ends, quote unquote, is Evan Ingram. You don't have to really respond to that the same way as if you have like Travis Kelsey and george kittle or kyle rudolph and george kittle some bigger tight ends guys who can play traditional Y spots so i don't think the defense is responding the same way so you're better off getting more speed and more on the field to do a better job with spacing
2: honestly i'm only a couple games into reviewing the 2020 season but just remembering everything i saw last year i don't even know if it's a hot take to say evan ingram was a better blocker than levine toilolo and that's like that is a sad reality the fact that they were comparable because we signed levine toilolo with the expectation that he was going to be somebody who could at least block and hold up the point of attack against someone comparable in size. And he really, like, I'm telling you, man, I watch a lot of Giants film and I saw a lot of 85 on the ground in so many different situations to the point where it was really frustrating. So I don't want to see him on the offense for the large uh, portion of snaps that he seemed to play in 2020.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're spot on. Levine Toilow has no, at this point, with what they've added in Tony Galladay. Barkley back in the mix, but that you can throw him out. And Kyle Rudolph. Just those three alone. And what they added in just those three alone. There's no room for somebody like Levine Toilolo on the field at all on offense. Absolutely. I don't think I think we were going over last night on the locker room percentages of people making the roster. If you look at the way that contract is structured, it's not a guarantee he's going to make the roster. I'm putting his percentage at 10 to 20% because I don't really see a point to him. He doesn't block well. He literally just looks the part, isn't the part. He's a lot like Ingram in that sense. But from a different standpoint, his is supposed to be the big blocking guy. And he's not that. And ultimately, you just don't need that on the field. It doesn't give you enough of an advantage. I get it. I see the appeal to it. But if you're not, if you want to be a power running team, if, you want, if you're the Titans, maybe with Derek Henry, just like for the Giants where they're at right now, Having him on the field for any snaps or even honestly having, at times it's going to be like having the combination of Rudolph and Ingram or Caden Smith and Ingram or Caden Smith and Rudolph. It's just not worth taking a Slayton Shepard or Tony off the field in my mind. And that's what the cost is. That's what you're taking off when you're doing something like that
2: yeah and the Giants also have young tight end like Rice and John who was an undrafted kid out of uh, Canada I think he went to Simon Frazier last year who they seem to like and I've heard practice reports from Ed Valentine and Pat Trena about how they're working with him, and he looks solid but you don't know what to to get from that but if he can show the positive development that they want I would imagine with the lack of blocking that Toilolo was able to do last year why not give that kid a shot put him out there he's going to be more of an impact player as a receiver but I can't speak to what he's doing as a blocker but Dan I wanted to circle back to just because we were talking about a little bit of offensive philosophy before why don't we see more rpo i mean we saw it last year a little bit but now with a full off season that's something that i really would love to see in this offense just put defenders into conflict read the defender whether that be the linebacker the overhang whatever and then if he comes down you can throw that slant if he stays put you hand the football off pick up a couple yards just put the put the stress on the defense it's something we saw a little bit last year with jason garrett but not enough in my opinion
1: No, it's 100% spot on. I mean, just for those who don't know, RPO. When Nick says that, he means run pass option, and this is something that really, with you know, you can work it off in conjunction with the zone read game. You can use it in a lot of different ways, like Nick said, to get a free release, get a free release on the slants, and in a lot of ways, you can kind of force that overhang defender, like Nick said, which has become a part of every defense at this point. Almost all defenses are using that Jabril Peppers type overhang defender. That's not the only guy the Giants use in that role, but those type of hybrid type players. And you force them to either come down and try to stop Jones or Barkley with as a runner or drop back and try to stop Galladay on that slant or whoever that may be running that type of route. And what's so disappointing to me, Nick, is that Daniel Jones used the RPO very successfully at Duke. It was a big part of the offense at Duke. So what happened when Pat Shermer drafted Daniel Jones? Pat Shermer looked at the tape at Duke and he said, this is something Daniel Jones can execute right away. There's a lot of things Daniel Jones couldn't do right away. I'm gonna be honest with everyone here. From a mental processing standpoint, he's still way behind. It's his biggest issue by far when you watch the film. And it's something that may never happen. He may just have slow eyes. That may just be Daniel Jones. I hope it's not it, but that may be it. And it's something we have to consider and not act like it's not in the realm of possibilities. But what a good coach did, Pat Shermer, a good coordinator, I should say, because that's—he's not a great coach, head coach, but a good coordinator. He said, "Let's do the things Jones does well." So RPO was a big part of that 2019 offense. What did Garrett do? He rarely used it, and that's a big indictment in my mind on a coach. If you're a, if an offensive mind and you and you don't try to work with the things that your quarterback does well, you instead try to make him better at things that you think are more optimal. So maybe he doesn't feel like running RPO a lot. is more optimal for his specific offense. That's not good coaching. Good coaching is doing the things that your players do well. It's not trying to get them to do things that you think have a higher upside. And ultimately, they don't have a higher upside. So I'm with you, man. If I have 10 major gripes with Garrett. We're going to get to this later this offseason. I'm calling them the 10 Jason Garrett non-negotiables. One of them on that list, I already wrote it out. We're going to do a pod on this is more RPO. It's non-negotiable. It's what Daniel Jones does well. There's no reason not to run it. It's also a, a reason you see a lot of teams running it is because, like you said, it gives you an advantage. It forces that overhang defender to make a decision. Why? What we talk about all the time, Nick, what did we talk about last podcast with the deeper routes? Putting the safeties in conflict, right? It's all about putting defenders in conflict. You want to put a safety in conflict with those deeper routes. With this, you want to put that overhang defender in conflict. Make it tougher for them to make a play on the football.
2: And by conflict, we mean you're basically basically forcing... The defender to make a decision, and whatever decision he makes is going to be the wrong decision. Because if he comes right. down on a route, then there's gonna be a route over the top of him. Now, defenders are typically taught to eliminate the most dangerous. So typically if they know a route's gonna be going over the top of them, they're gonna to drop to the depth to eliminate that route. But in doing so, another route is going to be coming to where he previously was, and then that route's going to be open. It's high-low kind of effect. Dan and I reference it a lot. When you high low a defender, he's gonna to drop to the depth to eliminate that high route in zone, but then that low route's gonna be open and dump the ball to him and then that if that if that offensive player makes that defender miss he's going to pick up even more yardage than what he's going to do just on the short six or seven yard pass so it's something that obviously jason garrett is fully aware of we just want to see a little bit more of it because there was just way way too many routes of offensive players in the giants running about 10 yards that could be angled it could be just straight vertical and then just stopping, turning around, and then their momentum is completely stopped and their hands are up facing Daniel Jones. And once you catch that football, you have to build your momentum up and then try to make play- defenders miss who are flying downhill with momentum on you, t- attempting to tackle you. It's just not a great way to maximize yards after the catch.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And generally speaking, routes that break back toward the quarterback sound like a broken record are just yeah. not a great way to maximize yak. But let's talk about some other updates. By all accounts, Kadarius Tony had a really good practice. Specifically, he had a really good one-on-one route by the sideline where he beat James Bradbury. This was interesting because he didn't really get many reps with that first-team offense. He's still mostly working with Mike Glennon and the second-team offense, but That was a good sign to see. I think the even bigger takeaway here, though, is what we're seeing so far from Daniel Jones and new addition Kenny Galladay. Because like we just talked about with the RPO game, Galladay will be a huge part. If they're going to run zone read, Galladay's going to be... In a lot of ways in this Jason Garrett offense, which we do not expect to change that much, coordinators do not just completely revamp their offensive system in one year. That's certainly not happening. Gettleman said as much when he said, I want Jones in the same system. So the terminology will be the same, but I also think the system will be mostly the same in... In a system so rigid like this, an X receiver, a big X receiver, is so important because there's so many routes where he's going to be asked to win one-on-one and use his size to body, to, to box out, and to get in a position where Jones can make a throw. And what I've loved to see so far is you see stuff like Daniel Jones and Kenny Galladay joined at the hip they're not leaving each other Galladay says that's my boy they were working extensively and extra in practice in the red zone on red zone routes they were doing a lot of fades in the red zone they had the one-handed catch that everybody saw on twitter pretty stupid it's against air i make nothing of it but it's pretty cool that they're working in the red zone together apparently they had no drops and any drills for what that's worth but again i like that they're working on a lot of back shoulder stuff i like that they're working on a lot of things together and that they're always with each other in practice because that's his one that has to be the one that's the one in this offense as far as the passing game goes i like tony's upside slayton obviously we still have a lot of you know hype and hope for but ultimately that's the number one receiver this is the number one option in the passing game in this offense. obviously ingram as well but so i'm i, I definitely like to see that
2: yeah, they uh, they have a bromance. They, they seem to have a bromance, which is something that you love to see. Both of them speak very, very highly of each other. They both met up several times throughout the offseason to throw the football, establish that timing and that rhythm and that rapport, and hopefully that ends up paying off in Sunday. But it's definitely cool to see, and it definitely seems like they're getting along just fine right now
1: yeah without a doubt a couple of notes daniel jones called Gadarius tony twitchy and explosive yeah. good quotes but i don't think that's breaking any news to anybody here saquon barkley said he's taking his rehab on a long-term basis and has set no timetable again nothing crazy there nothing groundbreaking but i think that the long-term comment definitely says something i think what it says is that he's not going to rush this back he's thinking about his future and he gets it i mean listen that's What we expect, he tore his ACL and had multiple other injuries, I believe his MCL and maybe the PCL. I don't know for a fact, something I should know, but it was a little bit more than just an ACL. So I think we probably won't see Barkley, honestly. I'm thinking week one is still in play, but I think the preseason, I would say, has got to be out of the the picture.
2: Yeah, you can't rush him back, and that just means more work for Devontae Booker, who's going to make this roster, and then whichever one of those third backs makes it, whether that be Gary Brightwell, Corey Clement, or Reichwell Armstead.
1: Yeah without a doubt. One more quote I found interesting when it came to Tony it was actually from Thomas McGahee, the special teams coordinator, which was surprising. He said he's electric with the ball in his hands. That's why you drafted him in the first round. To me, you get a guy who can play in the slot, but he can also play on the outside and give you return flex. I think ultimately the Giants may see a route, a path where they believe Tony can become an outside receiver. It's not impossible. Steve Smith, obviously the former Carolina Panthers Steve Smith I'm talking about, found a career as an outside receiver at five foot nine. Antonio Brown is not too much bigger than Kadarius Tony either. Right now, you can go back and look, and obviously Matt Harmon of, uh, um, sorry Matt Harmon of Yahoo Sports and Reception Perception has done a good job of showing that. As far as what we've seen so so far out of Tony, he's really bad against press so far. But, you know, he was in the first percentile, I believe, according to his game charting. But that can improve. That can change. He's still coming into his own as a receiver. He has not had much experience there. So I think it's interesting that Giants see long-term future potentially as an outside receiver.
2: Yeah, I would like to also just not have him be like oh you're specifically a slot guy he can move around i mean i think sterling Shepard he proved that he could do outside work although i believe that he's best utilized on the inside but I, I think a lot of these receivers can be mix and match you don't always have to have kenny galladay on the outside if you want to play big slot if you have a mismatch that you like and you can start him out out there and then you can motion him into the inside get him matched up against a smaller defender or something right. that's something that the giants could end up doing it doesn't always have to be this guy's on the outside this guy's always on the inside mm-hmm. and i believe they could all execute those roles solidly but Kadarius tony is somebody that you may not want to be on the line of scrimmage outside all the time maybe if you can bring him off the line of scrimmage as a z that's a role that he could execute
1: and you brought up a great point there nick and it's something i don't think that we saw enough of from jason garrett last year Darius lee comes out has an unbelievable rookie season with daniel jones built the rapport, looked great. Then he comes out last year and he struggles a bit. And Garrett never made a concerted effort to give him opportunities in the slot. Very few opportunities he had in the slot. And we talked about that week after week on the all 20 I remember us discussing it and yet we didn't see it. That's something that he needs to do a much better job of as a coach. Not putting guys in certain spots. Not saying you're our X, you're our Z, you're our slot guy. He needs to have a different mindset here and needs to find ways. That's something that a lot of great coaches have done. Alan Robinson has found a lot of success in his recent years in his career by being in the slot
0: we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast
1: being a massive mismatch in the slot. Keenan Allen is another player who started on the outside, started to move a little bit more toward the middle of his career and end of his career in the slot because he's a mismatch there as well. Get your best players in the slot often because those are the easiest routes. You have a two-way go as a receiver. And that's something Garrett, I think, should do a better job of. Yeah, the president of Golden Tate was just an issue, I feel like, for the Giants last year
2: in terms of all – and the injuries. And personnel was a part of it, I get it. But
1: there were times he could have put Slayton in the slot. Yes, All right, let's talk about the interviews now from the coordinators, Jason Garrett. we obviously the special teams coordinator. Let's get to Garrett and Graham. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff and it affects everything, which you obviously
2: know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, Jason Garrett interview. Not much was said. There are only five total questions asked of him, and one was, Is it important for Daniel Jones to take a step of improvement this year? Which is honestly just a throwout question. It didn't even need to be asked. I don't think you can learn anything from that question. And there was nothing really to set in during the answer either. He's like, yeah, it's important for everybody on our team to take a step. Like, I, I really don't know what that even asked. But one thing I did have a problem with, basically the only question of substance was, and I'll explain why I had a problem with it. But let me say, the quote was this. The biggest issue with this team going into last year was that obviously, he said obviously, not like it's up for debate, obviously the turnovers. Over the last couple of years, really, and just not going into last year, this was obviously a problem. You're not going to win games when you're down 31-32 on turnovers. And the turnover ratio in the early part of the year, we didn't do a very good job of that. We continued that trend, but if you look at us in the latter part of the year, we did a better job taking care of the football and winning the turnover ratio. And that gave us a chance to win games down the stretch. That was a positive thing for the team. Here's why I have an issue with this, Nick. I'll start by saying what I think are the two... Obvious, because he calls it obviously the most important issue for him on the offense. Remember, the 31st ranked offense by all metrics, and only 31 because Adam Gase was coaching in the NFL, <laughs> and he he led the 32nd ranked defense. Without Adam Gase, this would have been the worst offense in football. Despite having Darius Slayton coming off a great rookie year, despite having Sterling Shepard, despite having, and there wasn't too much else. But Daniel Jones, supposed to be a great player, so let's say despite having Daniel Jones and Evan Ingram, who for some part can be used better, maybe. I can get too deep into Ingram because I know you're not a huge Ingram. No, no, no. I
2: was actually <laughs> just talking to somebody on Twitter, and I said, there, there are things Evan Ingram can do. There definitely are. He just hasn't been used probably to his fullest potential, and he's been miscast a little bit. So I do believe he's a useful player, and I think in the right offense, he would be a solid contributor, but he's just not this Y-stick option mm. guy at all. That's much more of a Kyle Rudolph role. Hopefully. And I'm with
1: you. I don't think he's that good of a football player, to be really honest. No, he no, doesn't no, do yeah, a yeah. lot of things you need to do to be good at football, like mainly catching the ball naturally with your hands <laughs> so like that's which a is a huge big part component. of
2: playing tight end
1: and making 90 degree cuts which is also a big part of playing any role in mm. the passing game but anyway my idea of what the biggest issue were and i'll call him quote unquote jason garrett style obviously quote unquote were one red zone offense turning red zone possessions into touchdowns not field goals and two chunk yardage plays. But when your mindset is that the biggest issue is turnovers and we have to do everything in our power to eliminate turnovers, how are you going to have the, this? Is the problem. I'm not so sure, Nick, that these two things work hand in hand together. If you're, like I said, if your mindset is avoiding turnovers at all costs, can you really generate chunk yardage plays? I'm not so sure. When that's your mindset, it makes it a lot harder and more difficult to generate those chunk yardage plays because in order to avoid turnovers, you don't want your quarterback sitting in the pocket, so you run those four curls to the sticks and you run all those stick routes because you don't want to get turnovers and how do you he's like we need more explosive plays that's what he said after that Credit to you, Garrett. You said that. You need more expensive plays. But how? How are you going to get explosive plays if you're trying to avoid turnovers at all costs? He touched nothing on the red zone offense, which has been a disaster for them. Settling for way too many field goals. Need to figure out better play calling down there. Jones needs to be way more efficient in the red zone. That, to me, is where Jones is at his absolute worst. And nothing on that. Nothing on the chunk yardage plays. So, to me, it's just like he wasn't pressed at all here. He just said, cut down on the turnovers. That's number one. And I I just don't buy it. And that's obvious anybody who remotely knows a little
2: bit of football knows the giants had to cut down on turnovers going from 2019 to 2020 because daniel jones was an absolute turnover machine so i wish there was a little bit more substance there from that jason garrett interview as you alluded to i don't know how much he would have gave away it seemed like a lot of just you know coach speak type of things which is unfortunate because what's the main thing we've all been talking about on giants twitter everybody who loves the giants talks about the giants follows the giants the main issue we've had Is this offense and facing Garrett has been a big part of that, a big issue with that. And yes, he has some excuses, but so does the entire NFL with the 2020 offseason, the truncated offseason. And yeah, the Giants had a young offensive line and Andrew Thomas struggled and all of this. But you know what? At the end of the day, you were the 31st ranked offense. It was only one offense worse than your offense. And they have to figure this out now. You have all of these weapons and you can't just keep running those spot and curl routes and those spacing concepts all the time you need to be more creative
1: yeah without a doubt and that's it for the Garrett interview there was nothing else of substance and you could say that listen we get it it's the offseason they don't want to give anything away but I'm looking at my list in our notes and there's multiple quotes I want to talk about Patrick Graham Patrick Graham said a lot of interesting things so I don't know if that's necessarily the case no I don't think Jason Garrett was
2: going to give anything away that could be true I mean he's been a
1: head coach for so long he's trained on how to talk to the yeah. media but press him a little bit man press him make him talk about how they're going to get explosive plays ask him about the red zone offense ask him about the lack of snap motion. there's so many things you could have at least pressed him on maybe he says nothing you know maybe he just beats around the bush but at least make him see what his reaction is to that see if it's at least you know he has a face on like I understand that I've recognized that I've gone back on the film I've seen that's an issue and I need to improve that because there's just little things you can grasp just from their looking at
2: them speaking of uh, reactions of Jason Garrett Somebody zoomed in on – I don't know if you saw this on Twitter. Somebody zoomed in on his face when someone brought up Freddie – the presence of Freddie Kitchens. And he, he let a little subtle gulp there. There's a little uh, little subtle gulp. Of, <laughs> swallowed his throat a little bit. I don't know. A lot of people were on Giants Twitter were uh,
1: poking fun at it, and I thought it was actually kind of comical. That's funny. I did not see that video. I'll have to check that out. I don't want to really poke fun at Garrett. Like I don't ca- – I have nothing against Garrett. Well, neither do like, I. Someone just said to me on Twitter today, I know this guy. Get, get up on Garrett thing has become your shtick. I'm like, this is not my shtick. Like, I've tweeted about it a lot recently in the last few days, just specific points. It's not a shtick, guys. It's something that need The Giants right now, last year, had one of the worst offense in the NFL, and it wasn't just because of all the issues on the field from the personnel standpoint. A lot of it had to do with coaching, and there's a lot of easy ways to see it when you watch the film, and that's all we're basing this on. It's no shtick. It's literally that Guess what? When you're watching the film, you see a lot of things that you don't want to see, you don't want to have to admit, but when you're watching offenses across the NFL and you see so many teams like the Chiefs take so much advantage of spacing you see teams like the Bills and Brian Dable who does a great job Dable came out yesterday and they're like don't you need to get more balanced on offense and run the ball and he said hell no I don't need to we need to run the ball more efficiently but we don't need to run the ball more often and he's damn right because that Bills average more than double yardage on their pass plays and their run plays they had a game plan last year where they came out and threw the ball 26 straight times and they put up like 20 something points in that in those 26 plays like Passing the ball is how you win in the NFL. There's no doubt about it. You can run the ball efficiently at times. You don't. You want to find some semblance of balance to some extent. But there's different ways to get that balance with quick hitters in the passing game, with the screen game, something I would have wished they asked Jason Garrett about. How come you weren't able to get the screen game going at all in any regard last year? Is that something you want to focus on improving in 2021? Little things like that, but let's dude, talk. M- dude, that wasn't even a lack of trying, I don't think. Like he ran screens
2: and he incorporated some like more creative screens like to the tight ends and it just seemed like the execution was always really poor or was always just sifted out by the defense and I'm not 100% certain as to why
1: yeah that might be something they see on film opposing defensive coordinators that tip them off to knowing it's going to be a screen it might be something they see with the offensive linemen that tip them off do the offensive linemen take certain steps a lot of these guys like you said are young Andrew Thomas Shane Lemieux they may be tipping off that it's a screen that's all stuff that I wouldn't blame on Garrett. But I would like to know his opinion on how he's going to improve Mm. the screening because that offense, this offense needs a screen game, especially if they're going to stick in a lot of this twelve and thirteen personnel on early downs and be this team that wants to quote unquote establish the run with power running game. Well, then you need to use the screen game off of that too. So when you have defenses that are shooting gaps and are playing you aggressively, you take advantage of that type of thing. And defenses played the Giants aggressively a lot last season. Daniel Jones still owns the record, at least in twenty twenty, as the most bl- highest percentage of blitz. I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this. Against the Bucs, Todd Bowles' game plan was just send the house on Jones every play and dare him to beat them deep, something he struggled with. He blitzed Jones on 79% of the snaps. That was the most any quarterback was blitzed in a single game all season. And that was a similar game plan the Steelers had versus Jones. It was a similar game plan the Cardinals had versus Jones. It was a similar game plan that the Ravens had versus Jones. And all four of those teams did really well with that game plan against Jones. And that scares the hell out of me. We can talk about that on another podcast. We talked about this off-pod at length last night. But that scares the hell out of me because I... I think the defense are going to look at the film of that specific game plan and strategy against Jones and replicate that until Jones proves he can beat that. And in 2020 and 2019, he did not prove he can beat that because that was an issue too against the Vikings during his rookie season. They're, Zimmer did a lot of that against him. They're basically saying, we're daring you to throw the ball downfield accurately on time and beat us downfield with your mind. And that's not something he's been able to do. But again, one way to slow that type of thing down is working in a really good screen game.
2: Working in a really good screen uh, screen game, working the quick game really efficiently, and also hitting on those deep shots. And now that you added Kenny Galladay, hopefully he'll be more efficient in that area.
1: Yep. All right, let's talk about some of the things Patrick Graham said. I thought something that was really interesting that Graham said was that he's not really going to talk too much or put too much weight in the edge competition yet. He said, right now, a big part of the edge evaluation comes in training camp. Because like we said, because like when you when you say edge rush, this guy has to set the edge in the run game and have to pay, play blocks. And we give that evaluation part during training camp. So we had a whole long thing about how really until training camp when the hitting and the pads come on, don't make too much of this edge stuff. But I'll get your take on that. But I also thought it was interesting about what he said about Aziz Ojolari, O-J- one of the edges, because he says... He thinks he might have a leg up because he says what i've seen here is a rookie all right he's trying to learn the system but he has some familiarity with it because of some of the verbiage that we run is similar to what they did at georgia and the system that he has been in luckily we have the coaches too that have coached him specifically before so if there's also a little familiarity with that so while i don't want to make too much of the edges yet because graham warren does not to i do think that it is key point to make that Ojulari will have an edge up and we're counting on big things from aziz in year one
2: Yeah, we are. And it's actually uh, interesting, too, because according to Ed Valentine and his practice notes, he said that Ellerson Smith was taking first team reps with Lorenzo Carter as the first edge. And again, what are we making of this? Probably not a lot, but it's just uh, goes to show that they're probably going to mix and match and see who's going to be that number one guy. Ultimately, I think it's definitely going to be AZ Zojolari. And uh, one thing that he... I don't want to say criticize Aziz Ojolari on, but just brought up was he has to focus on keeping that pad level down because in college, you didn't necessarily have to do that. Now we watched a lot of film on Aziz Ojolari and I feel like his pad level wasn't too much of an issue, but I think we saw some of, uh, the, the, the drills where they, they put like a, uh, basically like a rectangle up and it forces your pad level down and exploding up. So that's something that Patrick Graham is, I guess, supposedly really trying to focus on Aziz Ojolari to keep that pad level down. And, uh, I mean, I don't really know how, uh, what to take, or what to really even speak on with the Edge Group because, as Patrick Graham pointed out, it's they're not hitting right now. <laughs>
1: No, but that's an excellent point that you made because maybe some of the things that Aziz was able to get away with at the college level, Graham doesn't think he's going to be able to get away with, specifically in this regard, the pad level, at the NFL level, against NFL level tackles. And so that could be a really good coaching point for him early on with Aziz. And if he has him get that down early, he might feel comfortable then starting to work him in with Ellerson Smith and the other guys with that first team defense.
2: Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm imagining, like like I said, the Ellerson Smith being... Uh, with a Lorenzo Carter, I don't think that's too, too much to read into. But could you imagine if Ellison Smith actually ended up developing into a, a, a 1B to Lorenzo Carter if Lorenzo Carter is healthy and you have Aziz Ojolari? I mean, I don't know. It's just,
1: There's a lot of upside with this edge group this year. I yeah. Even a player I'm going to talk about soon because I thought Patrick Graham had a really good quote on him, uh, Adenabo, who we'll talk about in a bit. But with those four guys, man, I have a lot of excitement surrounding this edge group. I really do. Specifically in this system
2: yes and also i mean we'll stick with the edge group and the defensive line i mean he he couldn't speak high uh more highly of leonard williams and everything that he was able to do and just how he's just a really really i think he asked he's like have you met leonard williams whoever asked him a question about him because i think the reporter asked uh, if uh if he's worried that he may not live up to like the production that he had in 2020 something along uh something like that and he said like i am no concern about leonard williams's work ethic and just who he is as a person and how he's going to just work his tail off even though he has the contract so i'm uh i'm hoping that all that's true and we, we see 11 and a half sacks again i'm not doubting his work ethic whatsoever but sacks can be very fluky as we could tell from 2019 leonard williams had what a half sack and <laughs> it happened at the end of the season everyone was mad. we were saying though if you watch the film he's getting those pressures but yeah sacks can be kind of fluky man
1: yeah sacks are definitely fluky i don't judge a defensive lineman on the sacks i think it's an overrated statistic and i think obviously you agree with that but i thought it was interesting just to expand on that he says basically you shouldn't worry about leonard because this is the type of guy who's been working hard at his craft to be a dominant high school player and he was a dominant college player and then a dominant nfl player and he said he came into this offseason like what do i need to, i know the things i need to work on i'm gonna work on those every day to get better because he's not a perfect player and i think the giants have actually done a really good job over the course of their franchise really of finding guys who love football that's a big thing they put preface on now sometimes it's to a fault because they'll stick with guys too long you can say that they did that with eli manning for being completely honest with the situation he's not the only one he's the first one that came to mind to me But there have been players in the past that they've stuck onto a bit too long because those guys are such good players off the field they work so hard their craft maybe evan ingram might be a good example of this if they re-sign him because they talk about how great he is on the field working so hard great off the field but it is important in situations like this when you pay someone because you know you're not getting a Janoris Jenkins. Yeah, they signed Janoris Jenkins. Maybe that was a whiff from the uh, you know, off-field standpoint, from the personality standpoint. Though he did do him a service in that 2016 season. He was locked down, yeah. locked down player. But obviously, things went off the rail with him in a lot of regards. Eli Apple was a miscast evaluation from that standpoint. DeAndre Baker as well. But having said that, with someone like Leonard Williams, when you have a guy who you just paid that amount of money, I mean they're paying him twenty plus million a season for a non-edge. It's insane o' money. But it's good to know that he's still really young, still knows that there's a part of his game he needs to work on to improve, and knows that and, and has dedicated himself to improving that.
2: Yes. I can't speak high enough of the veterans that are on that defense. And Logan Ryan, I think it was two days ago, he ended up talking to the media. And man, what a just a great individual, man. Looks like a true leader. He talked about how he's taken everything he's learned from guys like Darrell Rivas and players that kind of took him under his wing when he was with the Patriots. And uh, I'm... uh, I can't I can't say enough good words about Logan Ryan, to be honest. I'm really, really glad he's a New York Giant for the next couple seasons.
1: Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about the safety depth that they have. We'll get to that in a bit. But let's get to the best question of the day by far. The best asked question by far. It was from Pat Leonard, who obviously in the past has had a bit of a reputation as a clickbaity guy, but I thought did an excellent job on this one. He said he asked Patrick Graham the question that literally every Inside Giants fan, every fan who's been listening to our podcast or any fan who's consuming Giants at this level is wondering, have they made all these personnel moves, Adoree Jackson, Aaron Robinson, with the idea in mind that they're going to play a lot of man-to-man coverage this year, because in his past, Patrick Graham was a big man coverage guy with the Dolphins. Last year, he came open, He, I mean, he came in, opened the season against the Steelers, ran man and said, oh my God, I can't run man. Tried it one more time against Chicago and said, oh my God, I can't run man. I don't have the personnel for this. And so he switched to a lot of zone. And, Graham's response on this was right along the lines of what we said. So why don't you read the exact quote? Because I think it's a really good quote start to finish.
2: I know we didn't play a ton of man last year, but we picked spots to play man. Again, like those guys last year, they did a good job what we asked them to do. Like we mixed up more zone and then we had man in the past. But again, I don't know what the recipe is going to be for this year yet. But I don't want to be. I'm not saying you were but I don't want to be disrespectful to the guys that were here last year that aren't here now. I mean, Adori brings another element. Aaron Robinson, Darnay, they bring another element to it. Will we probably be in more man? Possibly, but it's always good to have that problem, which I also love speaking as Nick. Back to Patrick Grant. So we are going to try to do what's best for that game, that game plan, but you need to play man-to-man coverage in this league period point blank and obviously six wins last year we didn't do enough on defense so the hell with that we are looking at all options whether it's the blitz more blitz less play less zone play more man we need a whole lot of options because six wins just ain't gonna cut it
1: yeah and i really thought the key there was you need to play man-to-man coverage in this league period point blank that's the quote there i mean that's a key quotable takeaway you we can we can go to the grave with that one it's a really interesting and important quote and it kind of goes along the lines of everything we've expected this offseason regarding the moves they made with their personnel absolutely and we we've been kind of just talking about it for a while how they're probably going
2: to transition to a more man-based defense if if the horses can hold up and hopefully they can man and hopefully we see just more coverages now because if that secondary can play up to their potential they, i think they they have easy top five potential in the league
1: oh without a doubt and one more quote from patrick graham because i really like this because it's talking about a player who i think is one of the most unheralded off-season additions they made actually i think he is the most unheralded off addition he made I have more faith, from a value standpoint, I think this could be their best acquisition of the entire offseason. And that's Adenevo, the edge. And he said, I like the way he plays football. He has versatility on the inside and outside. So now that confirms what we were kind of wondering, Nick, will they put him in on the inside on some steps? Yes. Will they play him on the edge? Yes. He said, natural pass rush ability, plays strong with his hands, a physical edge setter with a great attitude. You know he's always soaking it in. He's very serious, but he could play around a little bit. He was joking with me yesterday. I was like, I don't feel your energy out here. He was like, coach, I'm focused, and he gave me a little shove. He said, I definitely felt it. Being down to this weight, I definitely felt it. This is Patrick Graham. I like him. He's a good football player for the reasons we why we like those guys. Plays with his hands, plays with his base and plays with good discipline that's the stuff right there and yes I think he's going to play inside outside this is Dan speaking and I think Odenabo is going to be a big time contributor that you just look at the end of the season we're like if the Giants do what we expect them to and I am cautiously optimistic they will be a playoff team this year we look back and we look at those key contributors unheralded guys and he'll be right up top my list
2: Yeah, and that's—you just stole the words right out of my mouth because we're not even relying on Odenebo to be this, like, game-changing type of guy. This was a one-year contract that the Giants threw out there, and we're like, oh, well, you know, maybe he can come in and play some third downs. But if this guy can play to just—if he can take a step from whatever he did 2019 and 2020 with the Vikings, which was solid tape, solid production. A lot of his sacks were a little bit of covered sacks and and broken-down plays on the offense— but you could see that he plays with a lot of pop in his hands. You could see he plays with really, really good leverage. And you could see that he does have an ability to disengage off of blocks. If he can continue to do that now with Leonard Williams around him, because remember, last year, Daniel Hunter, he was her. Everson Griffin's not in town anymore. There really wasn't right. a lot going on on that Vikings defensive line. But playing with, if it's Shalari, Ellerson Smith, playing with all these other guys, you could line him up on the inside. He could take advantage of some guards and centers because he does have solid athletic ability. This could be a really, really good addition for the Giants. But we have to see it all materialize. And you know, with the best it is if he doesn't end up living up to it he doesn't have to see the field because the giants aren't necessarily relying on him right now
1: yeah you're right he's just an edge piece and also an inside guy that is depth important depth because they didn't have any depth there last season it was one of the reasons that helped back the defense and that won't be a problem this year it doesn't seem like all right a few other funny quotes Nothing else too serious or great to take away. But I thought this quote from Nate Solder was funny, who also said that he's not worrying right now about starting or not. And he did see a rep or two at left tackle today. Obviously the expectation was he was gonna be a right tackle moving forward with the Giants. That may not be the case. I think he's more likely to just be a swing guy who can play both sides. But he said, I haven't played much football until the last couple weeks. So that's been a little different. But I did a few things. I was in my backyard doing pass sets and I got a little weight set. And I I said, I'm sorry, he said, I got a weight set down in my basement. It was just funny to read that because I was like, hey, this guy's like me and you and me, Nick. I mean, I got a weight set in my basement. I'm doing stuff with my weight set in my basement. This is a guy living at home, living at home with his family. He's got a weight set in his basement trying to stay in shape. So just thought it was a funny quote. I always said
2: Nate Solder and I had so much in common, you know.
1: And we'll see what happens there with Soldier this offseason. A couple other quotes that were interesting. I like what Jabril said. The beauty of Patrick Graham, baby, when it came to having so many bodies at safety. They both talked about trying to get DBs on the field. He said, I'm a big fan. This was Peppers. He said, I'm a big fan of getting as many DBs on the field as possible. You know, certain situations can allow for that. And this was just something that Brill said that I thought was really interesting. He said there's an advantage of having so many defenders on the field who are safeties or, in other words, hybrid players, guys who can play the run or the pass in multiple roles. He said along those lines, along the lines of depth on the back end, do you guys sit around and talk about or think about what you're going to cook up and what kind of advantages somebody asked him that and he said absolutely you know guys that can play multiple positions and remain on the field on both run and pass downs makes it for opposing offenses to get a tough difficult or difficult to get to be it makes it difficult for opposing offenses to get a beat on what we're doing what one guy's job is when we're multifaceted it's just about building on what we're already establishing feeling guys out yada yada but the point is I like where they're moving, and this is something that i got to give credit to Dave Gettleman for because when he came over from Carolina in one of his first pressers, he talked about how they revolutionized that second-level defender, that second-and-third-level defender. He was actually ahead of the game. People don't give Dave Kettleman credit often for being ahead of the game, and he's not often ahead of the game, we're <laughs> going to be completely honest. He's a very old-school, old-minded GM. But he was ahead of the game when it comes to that second level and third level defenders. He did it with Shaq Thompson, drafting Shaq Thompson early in that draft in the first round when no one, not no one expected that, but it was a little before people may have assumed. And he started to rebuild that Carolina defense in that way by having these Jabril Pepper types. And then when he went and traded Odell Beckham, he said it's non-negotiable that Peppers has to be in this deal. He wanted Peppers in this deal because he knew Peppers can be that. And when you have these guys like Peppers, Ryan, McKinney, who can come up in the box, play the slot, or drop into the deep half on the field for multiple snaps it gives you an advantage as a defense because it makes it so much harder like pepper said for the opposing offense to figure out what your role is on a given player. are you in the play are you on the field to stop the run are you on the field to blitz are you on the field to drop in coverage It's not easy to figure out, and that makes it—and that's one of the reasons, I think, why Patrick Graham's defense was so successful in year one. And now you're adding McKinney to the mix, who's basically going to be fully healthy, ready to rock, in addition to Adore Jackson, who's going to obviously mostly just be on the outside. But Aziz, other guys who can play that second level and kind of do different things for them.
2: It's funny, too, because another—a defensive coordinator that I feel like did a similar thing was James Betcher to be honest, right. with Naeem Buchanan and Tyron Matthew and a lot of those other uh, second-level defenders who were like 215, 220 pounds, but they could drop to a, a deep half and a cover two split safety type of look and then also come down in the box and punch you in the mouth.
1: And I think that's why Gettleman was in on getting Betcher on the Giants. I think he saw the upside of, here's a guy who's going along lines of where I think this, where defenses are moving in the NFL with these multiple second levels. Now, Betcher's issue was, Didn't ever seem like the players really loved him or believed in him. He overcomplicated the hell out of those coverages. And those were two things that can never come back from. But this is not a guy in Patrick Graham who does either of those things. The players obviously and absolutely love him. And it's the opposite. It's like he simplified it, but in a very complicated way for opposing offenses, if that makes any sense. Oh,
2: absolutely, dude. And it just... It got the blood flowing. I'm not gonna lie. When yes. he was
1: singing the praises
2: about the New York Giants organization, like, "Hey, this is my dream job right here." You know, the Jets? That's fine. They offered me, but, but this is my dream job. Right. Defensive coordinator for the New York Football Giants, and every Giants fan was like, "That's my guy
1: right there." And we'll end it on this because it's a funny one. Apparently, Jabril Peppers wanted to get his number five jersey back, but Graham Gano's asking price was just too damn high. I
2: wonder what the too damn high is, Dan. What is too damn high? Like, like how unreasonable? Because I don't know. Because these guys are really. i I'd say a over
1: 100k. Yeah, I would guess he asked for over 100k. That's crazy. And Jabril hasn't been paid yet. He's still on his rookie deal. Mm-hmm. Graham Gando's making more money a year. This is the un. This is the un. Unjust question. Unjust asking price. I would without knowing it. I'm going to say <laughs> Graham. It's a little unjust for you to be on that big second, third contract, whatever it may be, with all the millions you've banked, and you're a kicker. And you're that's <laughs> that's
2: the biggest part for me. It's like you're a kicker, but I, I like Graham. No, I love
1: Graham. You know, he's an unreal kicker. They have like yes. a, legit, a top five kicker in the NFL right now, which top, is top five, top ten,
2: which is awesome. But you are a kicker, yeah. but at the same time, like I'm not really big on like like I'm not huge about the crate Like I'm fine with it, but I'm not like oh he needs to be number five. You know, I'm not really necessarily like I think it would be cool though. You know, but yeah. if if he doesn't want to fork up the the dough, then you know he's not going to get it.
1: Without a doubt. All right. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks again for tuning in to all the listeners. If you want to do us a favor and help support the show, please, please, please head over to iTunes. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Make sure you download every show. And if you leave a review, you can leave a review with a question in it, and we will answer that question. There's been no questions lately. The last one was on May 20th, so there's not much to say. Somehow we went from 600 to 599 ratings, which I'm not sure how Uh, because we did talk about being at 600 so whatever that means leave us some ratings we want to go back over that 600 mark also head over to youtube type in big blue banter subscribe there head over to instagram type in ny big blue banter subscribe there that will only take a couple seconds of your time good thing to have on your feed otherwise have a great rest of your week and we will talk to you soon